Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this Memorial Day weekend. Glad you're joining us online this morning. Uh, wherever you're joining us from, I'm glad you're joining us. Took an hour out of your day, out of your Memorial Day weekend celebration or camping trip, or maybe you're just chilling out at home because you're smart enough not to uh, go out in all the craziness that it's going to be this weekend after over a year of COVID. This weekend's going to be nuts at like every campground and every place anybody goes. So I'm glad you guys are here. Hey, a um, couple quick things before we get started um, into the sermon is diapers. We are one week left in our um, uh, diapers and wipes drive that we're doing. We collect diapers and wipes to love on families who foster in our community. And so you can bring diapers by this week. You can have them mailed here. Uh, you can find our address by Googling it, right? At 959 Church Street West, Monmouth, Oregon, 97361. Or you can we had a problem with this first service. Apparently, a cable's going out. You can text the word Monmouth to 97,000, and then it's going to pop up with a little menu. And number one is Mom's Day. You respond with number one on Mom's Day. It's going to send you a couple links, and one of them is our Amazon wish list. And the best thing about that is it auto-populates our address so you don't have to remember our address. You can have it delivered directly here before next Sunday. Next Sunday. So... That's awesome, and you should do that. Um, the next thing I want to do is I want to show you a video, which necessitates this TV working here. So we're going to buy ourselves just an extra second because it's going to work. I'm confident. You ready? Can you feel the anticipation building? How about, how about those Blazers? Anybody Blazers fans? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good thing that they didn't just totally ruin it. So I guess um, we're going to watch on the outside TVs. And so if you, have camera operator, if you could get one of these outside TVs. Last week was a great Sunday. A um, lot of fun. Not only did we get to celebrate Mary's retirement, but we had some baptisms this last week. And, uh, and so we want to show you a quick little recap video of this last week to celebrate again. So uh, let's watch this video right here. We're going to end service with a couple baptisms. So if I get Gage and Charlie, yeah, come on up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gage, for those of you who can't tell online, Gage brought his own cheering section over here. Love it, love it. Hey. So Gage and Charlie both decided this week that they wanted to uh, make a statement publicly of their faith through baptism. Uh, the reason I want to get baptized is I just want to be able to proclaim my faith and come out to the world and say, hey, I'm a Christian now, <laughs> you know. I want to get baptized to take that leadership role, to be able to tell people on the street, guess what I did yesterday, you know, or on my honeymoon and be like, I got baptized before my wedding. And I'm excited about that. Eric, I'm going to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and your personal Lord and Savior? Okay, and that, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and your personal Lord and Savior? Uh, with that, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.
And man, that is the fun stuff we get to be a part of, you guys, is, uh, is really seeing lives change because of who God is and, and what he's doing in people's lives, and we just get to be a part of that. Um, hey, so we are in a series on the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go to Matthew 18. If you got it on your phone or an iPad, you can go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15 is where we're going to be. Um, what we're going to do today is I'm going to read the passage. We're going to talk about why we don't like the passage and, and then we're going to see if we can maybe learn a couple things that might actually change something different about how we interact with one another and how we f- walk through this life of following Jesus. And so, so let's, let's read the passage, and you may come really quickly understand why a lot of us don't like reading this passage. So Matthew 15, Matthew 18, verse 15 says this. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." So here's one of the reasons we're not a huge fan of this passage is because even just the title, if you've got a Bible in front of you, it probably has a a heading that the editors added, and it probably says something like church discipline. And, And when we see it in this context, what we think of when we think of church discipline is we think of church, not as people, not as us, not as the body of Christ, but we think of church as kind of cold and institutionalized, right? And then we think of the word discipline, And we think of the word discipline, um, I have this realization, we think of the word discipline in the same way that we think of the word consequence. They're not inherently good or bad, but you only use the word consequence in a negative sense. You run, like you, you never, if you, like you were coaching kids or you have kids um, and, and the game's over and you don't do that like post-team huddle, you know, and you bring all the kids together and you say, hey, you know what? I know you put in your heart this week. I know you showed up and you put in everything you had and you fueled your body to be ready to play this game and you worked hard throughout the whole game and you never gave up and the consequence of that is you won. You never have. Because consequence, we're always like, hey, you ate cookies out of the cookie jar and you weren't supposed to. The consequence is, right? And discipline is the same way. It's not inherently a good, bad, positive, or negative. But a lot of times for us, when we think of the word discipline, we think of it synonymous with punishment. And so then we take cold, institutionalized church and punishment and put it together and go, woo, what a fun week to talk. Church punishment. But that has nothing to do with what this passage is actually about. You see, um, the word discipline comes from the same root word as comes the word disciple. At the heart of them, they're both about what it means to be a student. You cannot be a disciple of Christ without inviting discipline into your life. Just, just listen and breathe for a second. Okay? You cannot be a disciple of Christ without inviting discipline into your life. At the root of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be a student of Jesus. To be a student, to be a disciple requires that we invite into our life discipline. 
Now, there, in my mind, in my categories, I, I think discipline comes from three different places, okay? Um, it's easy if you think of a sports team, right? If you're on a sports team, uh, you, you, the first type of discipline is self-discipline. There are certain areas of your life where you have to choose to discipline yourself. If you're on a sports team, you got to show up to practice. you got to put the effort in. You're the only one who knows if you're putting 100% in or if you're not. You have self-discipline discipline. Following Jesus is the same thing. Is There is a certain amount of our following Jesus that requires we have self-discipline. Now, a lot of times, if we're going to be honest, self-discipline is not fun. Um, as with everybody else in all of America, you know, COVID happened, so we bought an exercise bike, right? Didn't go to the gym before, but Thought an exercise bike would be a good thing to have in the house. Recently, I've been trying to get on that exercise bike. I think I'm like 31 days in a row. You can tell it's been very effective. (laughs) Right? But let's be honest. When you self-discipline yourself, most days, you don't want to get on the bike. You don't want to work out. Most days when you are disciplining yourself and following Jesus, if we're going to be honest, most days the things Jesus calls us to do, not like, yay, I get to forgive people. Yes, I get to be patient with people who I really can't stand. I get to choose to love people who grate on my nerves. Yes, I get to get up and read scripture. Now, now let's, okay, when you do, there's life. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. There's goodness and there's joy and, and, and there's, there's goodness that comes from it. But a lot of times, the things that Jesus calls us to do are work. We have to discipline ourselves to be obedient to the things Jesus calls us to do. Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament And he's writing to one of his students, a a guy named Timothy. And he writes to Timothy. uh, He says this in 1 Timothy 4. He said, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline your, now, now, self-discipline doesn't make us godly. Self-discipline doesn't make us righteous in a salvific sense. Self-discipline cannot save you. But we discipline ourselves so that we might become more and more like Jesus, so that we might walk closer, follow him closer. Part of being a disciple of Jesus is self-discipline. Now, now there's another place that discipline comes in. Um, If you're on a team, you're going to have discipline that's going to come in from your coach, right? Your coach is going to set boundaries, expectations. Probably at the beginning of the season, he's going to say, hey, this is what the practice schedule looks like. This is our expectation of when you're going to show up and what you're going to do. And then he's going to hold you accountable. He's going to discipline you. And then when you don't, everybody's favorite, right, is when you don't, you get to run lines. Anybody miss running lines, right? You're going to run. He's going to discipline you in the same way. Scripture says that we have a coach, uh, the, the, the word it uses more often is a father. It says this in Hebrews 12, verse 6. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That we have self-discipline, and there's discipline that comes from God. And it's not synonymous with punishment. 
It's him trying to lead us just as a coach does to say, hey, if you want life and redemption and restoration and hope and, and, and beauty and goodness in your life and a future and all these things to come together, then there are some things you have to do with your life. There's a famous football coach, and he said that, um, uh, that coaching, all coaching is, is getting people to do things they don't want to do to get things that they want to get. And that's so much of our relationship with God, is that God is getting us to do things we don't want to do to get things that we want to get. We want life, and we want freedom from our bondage, and we want hope, and we want a future. And God's calling us over and over again, disciplining us so that we have those things. So you have self-discipline, you have discipline that comes from a coach, but then if you're on a team, there's a third type of discipline. And as, when I coach, I coach football. Um, one of my, it's one of my favorite types of things to see in a football season, right? Um, you have a, an older kid or a more experienced player, and then you've got a new kid. He's brand new to the sport, uh, doesn't know the difference between a three-point stance and a four-point stance, uh, doesn't know if he's on offense or defense, has no clue what's going on, and we're running a drill, and he just can't figure it out. And then one of the most fun moments as a coach is that moment when that veteran player, the older player or the more experienced player, grabs the kid and he pulls him aside. He pulls him out of the drill and he says, hey, let me, let me show you how this works. Put your foot here, move here. No, no, get your elbow in tighter, do this, right? And he's, it, we, we call it teamwork. He's holding his teammate accountable all, all the time. If you've ever been a coach, you'll say, you know, hey, hey, you guys, at the end, you just have to hold each other accountable, you have to make sure your team are, teammates are putting in the effort, they're putting in the work, they're showing up, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Because, you remember this talk if you've been a coach or ever been on a team? Because when they don't, they hurt the rest of the team. And so we hold each other accountable. And Matthew 18 is that conversation. Is what does it look like? The word that the Bible uses isn't team per se, it's family, body, but what does it look like for us to be a family, to be a body, to be a team, and to hold each other accountable? That's what church discipline is. So, so, so today, I, I want to look at this passage again, these four verses, and I want you to notice um, uh, six things I noticed, and then maybe see if at the end, if uh, there's actually something valuable and good and different we should be doing with our life than we are today. So the first thing is this. Look, look again at verse 15. It says this, if you're... Let's all say this together. I know it's Memorial Day weekend, so there's not a lot of us. So you're going to have to be really loud and aggressive so the online audience thinks there's people here today, okay? Here we go. You ready? If you're, there you go. If you're brother, here's the thing. Here's what I noticed. Accountability, church discipline only happens in the context of relationship. It doesn't say if anyone, if someone you work with, if a neighbor, there's a lot of things that Jesus tells us to do with our neighbors, right? I mean, he says this, that the whole law is summed up in this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, blah, 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 all these other things, all of who you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? But this isn't what Jesus is talking about here. He says, if your brother, if your brother, accountability, holding each other accountable only happens in the context of relationship. At the very end, we're going to ask the simple question of if it only happens in the context of relationship, who are you in relationship with? Number two, let's look at it. Number two says this. We're not even going to change verses. We're just going to change the underline. Look at this magic. You ready? If your brother sins, look at that. Look at that technology. Woo! 
I did that all myself. Um, Here we go. If your brother sins, if your brother sins, here's a really important thing to know about that. It is not referring to a singular incident. Now, yes, if someone crosses a line against you, if someone violates a boundary, yes, you need to uh, confront them or you need to find someone who will confront them. Because let's be honest, it's not always the most healthy thing. If someone does something against you, it may not be acceptable. You may not be in a healthy place. It may not be a fair burden to put on you to go have that conversation, especially when we're talking about things like abuse, right? But This word here is plural, which means not a singular instant, but when the sin has become so much a part of the person's life that it is normative in their life. Um, It helps us to understand why the response later on is so dramatic, right? It's not to say, if someone cuts you off in traffic, cut them out of the church, right? That's not what he's saying, it, it, when, when sin has become so ingrained into the person that it's become a part of who that person is. Um, Bruner, he's a really great theologian, writes a lot of commentaries, and he's talking about this, and this is what he says. Um, he says that what it's talking about here is, is when sin is no longer a tempting attraction, but it is a life. It is the life. He goes on to talk about that it takes on a life of its own. It has its own embodiment that expresses itself over and over and over again. Accountability in relationship. When it's become a, 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 a lifestyle issue. And then number three, I love this one. It, it says this, if your brother sins, go. He, he, let me ask you, what's the, what's the assumed pronoun right here? You go. You go. When it comes to teamwork, when it comes to holding each other accountable, the onus, the weight is on you. You go. Uh, This actually should remind us, if you read Matthew 18 in full context, and if you were a Greek reader, what you would find is just three verses before, in verse 12, Jesus is telling us the story uh, about the 99 sheep and the one. And you remember, the one sheep wanders off. You've heard this story before. The one sheep wanders off. And then what does he say the good shepherd does? The good shepherd goes after him. That if we are to be disciples of Jesus... That if we are going to be like the shepherd, then we are going to be people who are going to go after other people. We, I, I don't know the amount of heartache and division that has happened in churches throughout the years when someone's life has been consumed by brokenness and sin and people sit back and go, well, I mean, they made their choices. I mean, if they really, if they really wanted to fix things, they, they'd come talk to us. And we allow people to wander off in brokenness and bitterness and anger. Uh, I heard a story um, just recently. It just happened like a year and a half or two years ago. And uh, there was a, a small group leader in a church. And he, he'd been a small group leader of this dude's group for, for a lot of years. And it was a really tight group. They, they'd go on trips together and they'd have these men's retreats and all these types of things. And um, it came out that uh, he'd allowed some things in his life to, to, to begin to entangle him and ensnare him. And he became consumed in some brokenness and some sin that was affecting his marriage and affecting his family and affecting his relationship with Jesus. And, and it became public. And as it often does when those things became public, 
He, he hid, right? That's what we do. When, when our brokenness gets put on display, we, we, we often pull back and hide. And so he stopped showing up to church. And, and the Jews group very quickly noticed that he wasn't showing up to church because they, they were like, they were a team. They did life together, right? So they had a little discussion and they decided that they weren't going to let him just wander off, but they were going to do what Jesus told them to do. That when the one wanders off, to go after him. That when your brother sins, you go after him, right? So they decided that next week when they had small group, they would just have small group on his front porch. And so they showed up to his house and they knocked on the door and his wife came to the door and they said, um, hey, uh, we're here for small group. You, you, you want to let him know that we're just going to be out here on his porch having small group. And they did small group, and he, he never showed. He never came out. Too much shame and too much embarrassment to face the group that he had led. And so they had a little discussion with his wife. This is important detail with permission of his wife. They all went home that night, and they grabbed their camping gear and their tents, and they went and camped out in his backyard. And they told him that we are going to wait here until you come out to us. And they barbecued, and for three days... They all called in were sick to work. They sat in the backyard and they studied the word and they sang worship songs. They played cornhole and they hung out and they barbecued. And I'm sure if they're anything like me, just to like, in, just to put salt in the wound, no pun intended, they, 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 they probably cooked the best things they could imagine cooking on their grill so that he would sit in his house and just smell all the savory goodness roasting out there because they refused to let a brother just wander away. They went after him. If we are to be the church as God calls us to be, if we are to be brothers and sisters, one body, one team, the onus is on us to go after the one sheep. Galatians 6 tells us this. If someone is caught in a sin, right? If they're ensnared, entangled, wrapped up in, in bondage, in chains, in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You go after them. You go after them. Number four is this, is that blind spots are real. Blind spots in your life are a real thing. Verse 15 says this. Look at it one more time. It says this, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. I think that's important language. Jesus does not make the assumption that the brother who's entangled in sin even recognizes it yet. But that if you see your brother entangled in sin, you go and you show him because we all have blind spots. You, just, just, just be humble enough in this moment to recognize that there are things about your life that you will never notice. There's no amount of self-awareness that you will be able to recognize it and catch when brokenness begins to find its way and entangle around your feet and ensnare you. That we all have blind spots. So it is essential that if we are to be disciples of Jesus, that we invite discipline into our life. Not just self-discipline. Not just coaching or fatherly discipline from God, but teamwork. Our team holding us accountable, watching out for the blind spots in our lives. The fifth thing is this. There's this peculiar uh, verse at the end. A lot of times we just skip it because it doesn't really make sense. 
to us. But he says this, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Uh, what, what, what he's saying here, it's just shorthand for the implications of what it looks like when you show someone their sin. When you show someone the bondage that they're wrapped up in, you are giving them a choice in that moment either to loosen themselves from the bondage of sin that they found themselves in or to choose to bind themselves to it. There may be ignorance for a season. They may be unaware of the impact it's having on their family, on their relationships, on their job, on their walk with Jesus. They may be unaware, but when they've been shown it, by you showing it, you are giving them the choice to either break free from it or to cuddle up with it. And as you see, we come at people, we hold one another accountable, we hold brothers accountable out of protection, not punishment. Our desire in holding one another accountable is protection because if there are blind spots in our life and there are things that can entangle us and we may not yet even be aware of it, we need brothers and sisters who will look out for us and help protect our soul and our life. There is too much at stake for our arrogance to think that we don't need brothers and sisters who can speak into our life. And so we come at it with protection, not punishment in mind. The last thing is this, and this is maybe the best. I love this. This is so good. This is so, uh, let me just read you. It's Jesus' word. Here, here's the last one. Here's the last one. Failure is not final. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Failure is not fine. Failure. If, if you go through all these, if you pursue a brother or sister and they don't listen, and then you bring other people and say, we love you. Can you see the destruction this is having on your life, on your relationships, on your relationship with Jesus? We love you. And then you bring other people around and they still do not listen. Even at that point, when we might mark it up as a failure, failure is not final. Because look at what Jesus says. He says, treat them as a Gentile. How did Jesus treat Gentiles? Let me, let me share with you a, a verse that we all know that was very scandalous, but not for the reasons that you imagine. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, in our culture, there are places, there are people who think that that is a scandalous thing because God gave his son. And there have been claims that it's, um, you know, uh, uh, basically a glorified child abuse, right? And that's what seems scandalous to us, that God would give his son for us. But if you're the first century, when Jesus uttered those words, what shocked and offended the religious leaders and the religious audience was not that God would give his son, but that it said, for God so loved the world, because you see, here, here's how they would have totally expected it and totally been okay with. If Jesus had stood up and said, for God so loved the Jews that he gave his one and only son, they'd go, amen, preach, right? But he didn't. For God so loved the world. From a, from a Jewish standpoint, there are two categories of people in the world. There are Jews 
and there are Gentiles. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And Jesus tells us that if a brother or sister refuses to listen, finds themselves so entrapped in the sin and bondage, he tells us to treat them just as he has treated the Gentiles who chased after them, showed them grace and mercy and kindness and pleaded with them, pleaded with them, held out hope that maybe one day their hearts would soften and change. I think that I think that Matthew, I mean, Jesus, when he said these original words, like, you know, Jesus might have said, um, uh, he is to be to you as a Gentile or a sinner or a prostitute or a tax collector or, or a, a, a rebel, or he may have made all these things, but I think there's a very specific reason that Matthew wrote Gentile and tax collector. Do you remember what Matthew's previous occupation was? He was tax collector. Here's what Matthew's trying to tell us through the words of Jesus. That even when our brother or sister refuses, that we should treat them in the same way that Jesus treated us. That Matthew's saying to you, you treat that brother the way that Jesus treated me. He chased after me. When nobody else wanted me, when my life was a wreck, when all of my selfish ambitions had come to nothing, when I was alone and busted, that's when Jesus showed up at my tax table and said, you follow me. That's when Jesus showed me grace. That's when Jesus showed me kindness. And if we are to be disciples of Jesus, even when loving discipline of a brother or sister fails, we must treat them the same way as Jesus treated us to show them the same grace and mercy that Jesus showed us. The times that this whole passage goes sideways and goes weird and we've seen throughout church history have been the times that we forgot to treat lost and wandering brothers and sisters in the same way that Jesus treated us when we were lost and wandering. So here's my question for you. Who is it for you? Who is it for you? Who is it in your life that you've given permission to hold you accountable? And, and here's what I mean. Um, you need to have verbal conversations with people and tell them that they have permission to ask you anything. If blind spots are real and sin is a temptation and we are broken human beings wrestling with this, with this flesh and this spirit that's wrestling inside of us, we desperately need brothers and sisters who will speak truth into our life, who will ask us hard questions. And so my question for you is this. Who is it for you? Who have you sat down with and said, I, I need this from you. I need you to ask me hard questions. You can ask me anything. There is nothing off limits that I will not answer to you. You don't have to answer everything, every single person on a platform in front of an audience, but there need to be one or two or three people in your life that have permission to ask you anything. We desperately, as disciples of Christ, need accountability, loving, gracious, hope-filled accountability one from another. So who is it for you? Who has that permission to ask you anything? There, there are people in my life that can ask me anything because <laughs> there's too much on the line for my arrogance 
or ignorance to train wreck all this? Who is it for you? Lastly is, is this. Who, who is it for you in, in that who, who have you committed to? Who do you love enough that no matter the dumb decisions they make, you will continue to pursue them just as Christ pursued you, that you will ask them the hard questions, that you will be patient with them as they struggle with their own arrogance and their own failures and their own weaknesses, and that you will be kind to them and pursue them just as Jesus pursued you. Who is it that you've committed to, that you are my brother, you are my sister, and I will never quit on you? Who is it? We are all, every single one of us, in desperate need of the kind of grace and mercy that God showed us to be shown to us and for us to show one another. So who is it?